This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Lacey. And I'm Ashley. And this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Rhode Island discussing a vampire plague. Then, we'll talk about how sex workers began vanishing one by one. Buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the ocean state. What do most people think of when you hear the word vampire? A scary, gaunt human who feeds on the blood of others by biting their necks? Well, today there are so many different ones to choose from, it can read like a fast food menu. Do you want yours to glitter in the sunlight, reciting sonnets and fighting off teenage werewolves like the ones from Twilight? Perhaps you want something a little more sexy and dangerous, like the vampires in True Blood. If you're like me and have zero interest in that love shit, and you like your vampires to rip throats out and make you pray for daylight, 30 days of night is more your speed. How about a demony vampire like Nosferatu? There are countless TV shows and books written about these creatures of the night that have fascinated people for thousands of years. You know the drill. The vampire bites the victim, then they are turned into bloodsuckers themselves and begin to prey on other humans. Most people don't believe it, but some of us still sprinkle salt around our door facings and make sure we're always wearing just a little bit of silver just in case. Today, I'm going to tell you about plagues, rituals, folklore, and why Rhode Island is known as the vampire capital of America. Once upon a time. Just kidding. Hold <laughs> your face. <laughs> oh, goodness. In the late 18th and early 19th century, there was a vampire panic in New England. Rhode Island was considered the Transylvania of America at the time. What? There were 18 cases of reported vampires. Most cases were found in Province County in extreme northeastern Rhode Island. They began dismembering suspected vampires in their graves, hoping to drive away the death that threatened their lives. It began in New England villages as they were being decimated by what we now know as tuberculosis. Oh, interesting. Entire families were wiped out as this disease spread like wildfire. What is tuberculosis? Well, today it's commonly known as TB, and it is a bacterial lung disease. Symptoms include fever, sunken eyes, blood would often drip from their mouths, they would cough up blood, They would lose tons of weight, have night sweats, and become very weak and pale. So, I can definitely see the parallel between why people, you know, would think that, I mean, that's everything you've read about vampires. This is, you're describing them. Today, of course, not as many people have symptoms like these because it's mostly cured with antibiotics. But it is still very much a worldwide epidemic where more than 1.5 million of the 10 million people infected with TB died in 2020. 1.5 million people died of TB in 2020. 
Some people don't like getting vaccinated. Do we know which countries? All over the world. Really? Mm-hmm. All over the world. So from 1786 to 1800, 25% of the East Coast died from TB. Jeez. That's a lot. Oh, yeah. There weren't a lot of people back then. Mm-hmm. It's a slow, terrible death that resembles your life literally being drained from you. Imagine a disease that takes its merry time to show itself and its symptoms are all over the place. You have a migraine, could be TB. You're coughing up blood, could be TB. You have diarrhea, could be, I mean, like everything, kind of like COVID. It could be a, everything is a symptom. Is that what they used to call consumption? Yes. Am I thinking of, okay. No, that's exactly, yes. Isn't that such a freaky? I would think consumption would be like alcoholism. Like you're consuming something. So this disease could go in and out of remission over months, years, and even decades. You could have it. No one understood how diseases worked back then or how they spread. All they knew is these victims were dying. And then soon after, their family members, one by one, would become very ill. (laughs) So it was very uh, suspect. Villagers began to believe that the first to die was perhaps a vampire. At night, they would come out of their graves and stalk their own family, slowly sucking the life out of them until they too died. Terrified by this, they figured the only way to stop these attacks was to dig up the bodies of the deceased and examine them. The bodies were sliced open and their organs examined to see exactly how decayed they were. And if there was blood in any organ, they were determined to be possessed. They were clearly an evil spirit that was draining the life out of their family member and sucking the blood and that's why the blood was in the organ. The evil bond between the living and the dead had to be destroyed and the only way to do that was to burn the infected organ of the deceased and oftentimes the ashes were fed to the family member that was ill. Yeah. I think you've made me one of those drinks before. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Attacks. Attacks. Sometimes extra steps were taken to ensure the vampires never rose again. They would behead them. Heard of that, yeah. And their bones would often be rearranged into a skull and crossbones symbol. So they'd like take their femur and their skull and like make a skull and crossbones in their grave. Interesting. I've always kind of wondered where that originated, you know? I mean, I don't know if it originated here, but yeah. Which brings us to one such case, 19-year-old Mercy Brown. In 1883, Mary Brown fell ill and passed away. Six months later, her oldest daughter, Mary Olive, passed away from the same ailment. And a year later, the youngest daughter, Mercy, also died. Edwin, the only son, who was healthy as a horse, fell ill not long after Mercy had passed. In March of 1892, a group of men went to the cemetery and they dug up the bodies of Mary, Mary Olive, and Mercy. So the mom and the two daughters. Mm -hmm. They concluded that one of these women was the one who was a vampire and sucking the life out of the family. Only by destroying the vampire would Edwin be saved. So the mom and Mary Olive were both pretty decomposed. But Mercy, who had been dead for about two months, was oddly preserved. She even had fresh blood in her body. 
So they cut her heart out and burned it and then scooped the ashes and mixed them in Edwin's medicine and he drank it. Oh my gosh. To be alive back then. I mean, he died two months later, so the concoction didn't work. But could you imagine drinking your sister's heart that had been burnt and put, ugh, mm -mm. No. So Mm -mm. have you ever drank ashes? Like, really? No, but I drank spit one time accidentally. Somebody had spit like chewing tobacco in my can and I took a like could you imagine just picking up your Diet Coke and taking a big swig and it was fucking spit I almost turned into a werewolf and ripped my clothes off and tore my house down girl well I've done something similar with a diet so I drink Diet Coke of course well like most people in my family drink Diet Coke well I was around people who were smoking and when they I didn't realize that they had put their cigarette in their oh. Diet Coke. So like how I accidentally drank your Diet Coke the other day, I picked up the drink and put it in my mouth. Oh and my as God. soon as it entered my mouth, I just spat it out. It's Oh my God. It, it tastes like how an ashtray smells, but it was so gross. That was disgusting. So anyways, Sorry. what the fuck, right? Like how was she so well preserved? Yeah. Well, Mercy was put in a crypt above the ground because when she died... The ground was so frozen Mm. in the winter in Rhode Island that they could not dig into the ground. So they put her in a crypt on top. So that's why she was so preserved. Mm. She wasn't a vampire. It was the cold and she wasn't put in the ground. But this legend still persists to this day. In fact, when Brahm Stroke, is it Stroker? Stoker. No, it's Stoker. Sure. Stoker. Sounds good. Well, when he died, they found newspaper clippings of the story of Mercy Brown being a vampire in his papers. So if y'all don't know who that is, he wrote Dracula. So these rituals were often a last resort for families who were desperate to save their loved ones and they just weren't ready to give up. Seems like some sort of witchcraft, but... At this time, there wasn't a whole lot of separation between science, religion, and magic. Kind of was all yeah. back in those days. Even physicians, it was yeah. kind of, it was like some people would consider it witchcraft and stuff sure. today, that oh, yeah. what they were doing. And was, I don't know. Like this caused mass hysteria oh. in a lot of places. And this is going on like 200 years after the Salem witch trials. So there was a new kid in town. Oh, Not witches gosh. anymore. It's vampires. I love folklore. It's so interesting to me. The Salem witches were alive when they became scapegoats. At least the vampires were fortunately dead. Yeah. Whenever they... Another case of vampirism was that of 15-year-old Ruth Ellen Rose. She passed away in 1874 from what we now know as TB. She was the daughter of William, a local civic leader, and his first wife, the late Mary Rose. Not long after she died... Her seven-year-old little sister got sick. Her dad was convinced that something evil was preying on his family, and he went to the local minister who listened to his concerns but wasn't buying it, thought it was a bunch of bullshit, that there was some kind of supernatural Mm -hmm. present. He was like, okay, they're, they're sick. Like, she probably caught it. But anyways, so his second wife, also named Mary Rose, they probably didn't have a whole lot of names back then, to be fair. So she was also a widow, She had lost her first husband, Thomas Tillinghast, who was a great nephew of a suspected vampire named Sarah. Hmm. So she tells 
William, all about the story of her late husband's family, and he was convinced that this was what was going on in his family. He was sure the only way to save his young daughter was to go to the family plot and dig up Ruth Ellen's body. So he digs her up, cracks open the coffin, and her white funeral shroud that was covering her face had blood on it. He raised his knife and proceeded to cut out his daughter's heart and burn it. I didn't see anything that said that the seven-year-old drank it or ate the ashes, but she recovered from being sick not long after he did this. Hmm. And the Rose family was never troubled again. Wow. (laughs) Must have been in the elixir. Must have been. So the earliest documented cases of these crazy rituals was in 1784 and the last being in 1892. Oh, that's it. I was hoping for a 2020. These kind of go hand in hand with the TB epidemic at the time. Yeah. Until a German physician named Robert, is it Koch or Koch? K-O-C-H. Is it not Cook? You just wanted to hear me say Koch. (laughs) Fair enough. So this physician proved that it was, in fact, a bacteria that was causing these sicknesses. And the sun came up on the vampire rituals and they came to a halt. Mm. So what do you think? Do you think there were ever vampires? No. Never? No. Do you? (laughs) You know I do. So I read somewhere that there are several references of vampires in the Bible. Don't come for me, Christians. I'm just reporting what I read. Like the fact that Lazarus was brought back from the dead by Jesus. And can we talk about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and we are told to drink his blood and those that do shall not perish but have eternal life. I mean, Catholics know during communion, they say, this is the blood of Christ. And I got to be honest with you, little Catholic angel baby Ashley was us, always kind of weirded out about that. Us Protestants do that too. So, so do you, is that not, <laughs> it says the I'm blood, saying, yeah, the drink blood, this, the blood, this is the blood of Christ. I've always been like, oh, she'll have eternal blood. life. That's well, vampire I hate to always bring it back to shows, but Midnight Mass, that's religion and vampirism, vampirism. Sure. They go hand in hand. That's why they, they really do. They make, like it supports all of their concerns and theories are like, oh, this is biblical. They keep thinking it's biblical because... It makes sense with the Bible. And they read it and quote it. And I'm like, man, it really does. There are so many. That's just like two things. Because there were so many. I was like, I'm going to keep reading this and something bad's going to happen. But there's a lot of quotes and things. It never says the word vampire in the Bible. Okay. But it does. Well, which version are you reading? I'm just joking. You're (laughs) like, what? I'm like, what? There are a lot of, I guess, passages, whatever you want to say, that, that, Things that allude, allude to something to similar. Yeah. Sharp teeth, sucking blood, eternal life, rising from the dead. All the things that... Oh, I, I learned about that in Sunday school. Vampires? No. The other <laughs> stuff. See? I'm just saying. So, again, don't come for me, people. I'm just, just reporting back. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> she read the Bible for this. <laughs> I did. So would you like to know a little bit of history of vampires? Yes. I mean, obviously, there are the obvious facts, like (laughs) only vampires can create other vampires. Okay. Like, you can't just, like, drink after somebody and become a vampire, or it's not an STD. You can't have a one-night stand and wake up You can't contract it. No. You can contract other things that are equally as bad as being a vampire. Oh, sure. 
I love that these are facts. These are facts. These, these are, are the facts. history of vampires. <laughs> the first vampire started out not a vampire, but as a human named Ambrosio. He was an Italian-born adventurer that fate brought to Greece. Hmm. It began with the sun god Apollo, who in a fit of rage cursed Ambrosio so that his skin would burn if it ever touched sunlight again. His bad luck continued, and he ended up gambling away his soul to Hades, the god of the underworld. The next curse came from Apollo's sister Artemis, the goddess of the moon and hunting, who made it so that Ambrosio's skin would burn if he touched silver. Artemis did take pity on the poor man and gave him the gift of immortality, but he would carry the curse of his skin burning in the sunlight or silver, but he would live forever. Artemis also gave him the gift of speed and strength to become a hunter. Yeah, I didn't know that. Lacey is not impressed with my vampire facts. Bitch. I am very impressed. (laughs) Ambrosio later moved back to Italy and is now a full-fledged vampire. So what happened to him? Many people still believe that he resides somewhere in Florence. Because he's an eternal I night girl. He's still living. Florida. No, well, he could probably, well, there's probably vampires <laughs> in Florida. It's too sunny. He's a Florida man. It's too sunny. You, can, you shouldn't be there. So the most famous vampire is, of course, Dracula. Mm-hmm. Stoker is said to have modeled some aspects of this character from the Romanian prince Vlad. The Impaler. But he was not a blood-drinking sadist, but a national hero who defended his empire from the Ottoman. Did you know that? You didn't. I do know some stuff about Vlad the Impaler. Tell me. He impaled. I'm done with you. Well, he tortured people. Yeah. In a lot of really messed up ways. Like, what is it called? Quartering? Ew, Pulling them apart from their limbs with horses attached and, ooh, Yeah. Mm-mm. Medieval torture shit. Just, I can't. Mm-mm. I would never go back to the past. Nope. The vampires that most of us are familiar with are human corpses that are said to return from the grave to harm the living. Lacey's laughing. No, there's... Remember I told you about that vampire speakeasy in New Orleans <gasps> that I wasn't invited to? Because you didn't look goth enough. I'm gonna go back. They would have fed on you. <laughs> they would have sucked your neck <sighs> off. So, the best way, of course, to deal with vampires is to prevent them from coming back to begin with, which is why they stake them in their grave, pinning them to the earth through the heart with the wood. With a wooden stake, Mm -hmm. wooden bullet, all the wood things. I laugh now, but I was terrified of vampires as a kid. Were you terrified? I would always sleep with the covers covering my neck because, like, that's going to protect them from biting my neck. I believe they were real, 100% terrified. Like, I thought they were going to come in my house. They can't come in your house. That's the thing. If you're going to deal with any booger, it would be a vampire. Because they can't come inside your house unless you invite them. But they can trick you. But they can trick you. They can trick you, but you just can't make eye contact with them. Duh. What are they going to do? Call your cell phone and be like, hey, let me in. Well, I don't know. Maybe they could build a rapport with you out and about and then, I don't know. And then they become your friend. They catfish you. Yeah, they can catfish you. Catfish. And they can make you fall in love with them. So, some traditions say that 
obviously they can't come inside unless you invite mm-hmm. them, unless you're being catfished, like Lacey pointed out. Some traditions also say the best way to stop a vampire is to carry a small bag of salt with you. If you're being chased, spill the salt on the ground behind you, and the vampire has to stop because they cannot cross. They have to count every single grain of salt before they can continue. You're not buying it. No, I, I'm nodding because I'm going to ramble. Go ahead. <laughs> So, The X-Files is my favorite show of all time. One of my favorite episodes titled Bad Blood, Mulder knows that vampires, I think he was like, they have kind of like OCD, where if there's a something tied, they have to untie it. And then also he scatters his sunflower seeds out like as a mechanism to get away because he knows that the vampire is going to have to Stop. stop and count every single seed. I, I had no idea that was a yeah. salt thing. I knew about the salt, but I didn't know why. You have to stop and count every single grain of salt. Interesting. And you why don't they away. ever put that in movies or shows? I mean, I feel like it was probably on Hotel Transylvania. Have you ever seen that? No. It's the cutest little show. I would probably show. like that, though. It's super cute. Hmm. There are a lot of vampires. Yeah. Probably walking among us. Oh, yeah. Lacey doesn't buy it. <laughs> She can't even look at me. Leave it to me to bring it, bring the season bring to an end the with, some, with some bullshit story. <laughs> you know, and I say never say never. I mean, she doesn't, she's not a believer. If you're out there, someone's hovering. Well, one of my favorite shows is What We Do in the Shadows, but that's a comedy about vampires. But they're, it's, it's really funny. I love the satire. Like they use the right. tropes and make mm-hmm. it funny. It's just, yeah. I'm done. I'm done with my vampire shenanigans. Well, I wanted to ask you, what's your favorite vampire? Like from TV, movies, whatever. Like pick your vampire. You're going to say someone from True Blood, aren't you? I mean, I do. I do enjoy a, a, a sexy vampire. So, but I also, yeah. I also like Interview with a Vampire. I was going to say that the, the Brad Pitt, yes, and Tom Cruise. Yeah, Brad Pitt and Interview with a Vampire is probably. I do like a, I like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into the True Blood, or not the True Blood, but the Twilight. I loved all the books. Did that you? was right up my alley. The really? movies? No, mm-hmm. not the movies. Mm-hmm. I like, I, I want to see some action from a vampires. Mm-hmm. 30 Days of Night is fucking horrifying vampire movie. It's terrible. Have you seen it? It's so oh, scary. Yeah, it's been a long time. Well, they it's run. It's so scary. They run, right? Like they're, they're just so like, fast. Yeah, they're fast. But they're fast in True Blood, too. Yeah, that's true. I, I only but these watched are a like, few episodes of True Blood. These are like, because they go to Alaska because, you know, 30 days of night. And that's smart. You and shouldn't be in Florida. You should shouldn't, be in Alaska. You should be in Alaska. But then you got to get out before it's 30 days of day. Yeah, or you could just, I don't know, hibernate like a bear somewhere. Or For 30 days? They have to eat. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. I don't know. If you're a vampire, write in. If you're a vampire listening, let us we've know. got the facts wrong. Oh, yeah. Please email Lacey. Oh, they're going to... Do not show up at her house. <laughs> I won't let anybody in. No so. one's coming in. You're not no, welcome you're not here. In here. What's your favorite? I was going to say Interview with a Vampire. Interview with Brad a Vampire. I didn't watch that tonight. That was a really good movie. It's been a long time. I haven't seen it in ages, but yeah, Interview with a Vampire, for sure. At what age? If you were going to be a vampire... And be turned, and that was the age you had to be forever, all eternity. What age would you be? 28. <gasps> See, I was going to say 27. 27 was like the best year of my life. Well, probably uh, 35. I had max when I was 35. So 
I don't remember much about being 28, but um, that just seems like a good <laughs> seems thing like to a say good number. forever. Uh, but if I was a man, I would probably say like 34. If I was a man, I'd probably say like 40. Who are we that would be younger women vampires? And older men vampires. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if people could handle me when I was 27 for eternity. I mean, I'm able to handle myself. I wouldn't want to live forever, I don't think. It's like the the pill in the movie or the TV show, uh, American Horror Story, about vampires and they're in up New there England. By, yes. by Rhode Island because they're in Massachusetts, right? Yes. That's just right across right, right, the Right, right there. Makes sense. And they took the pill and it made them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd probably take the pill. I'm not risking it. You wouldn't want to live forever? No. I probably would. <laughs> You're like, eh, family and friends will die. I'll make new friends. I'll make new, <laughs> I'll make friends. new friends. What are these people? Oh, my gosh. All right. And we've rambled. Well, we have rambled. Sorry. Sorry. We're, not we're sorry. excited about vampires. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, okay. mine is not about the supernatural. But I did, I did really enjoy this. I like folklore and stuff. I'm really I, into that kind of thing, honestly. I like it, too. So we all know that Rhode Island is small. And full of vampires. <laughs> and I do small, yeah. In fact, it can fit into the state of Texas 221 times. What? Yeah. I'm looking at our map. You can also drive across the entire state in one hour. Really? Mm-hmm. It's like driving to Hot Springs. That has nothing to do with my case, <laughs> but I wanted something light. So my case takes place in Wound Socket, Rhode Island. On February 9th, 2003, walking on Arnold Street in Wound Socket, Rhode Island, 33-year-old Audrey Lynn Harris talked to her mom on the phone and said she was going to visit her mom later. She never arrived. In fact, she's never been seen or heard from since. Audrey was a sex worker and struggled with drug addiction, but she was in contact with her family. You know, it wasn't like... She didn't just go MIA. Right. And she had three children, and they didn't think it was like her at all to just leave without warning them or at least Mm -hmm. saying something. Okay, so sex work, as we know, can be adults receiving money or goods in exchange for consensual sex. This was legal in Rhode Island between 1980 to 2009. I mean, I feel like that's dating. Good point. I'm, I'm just, just saying. I know. Look, I don't... That's not the only reason why, but... Yeah. You receive both people, men and women. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. But, like, they could be on the street. You know what I mean? Like, right. it was legal to do that. They could right. be out on the street and... Walk on the streets, yeah, yeah. walk on the corners. Cops are probably purchasing BJs. Oh, for sure. And But running a brothel and pimping was illegal. Interesting. So but, you're like a free agent. Yes. Got it. Okay. So Nevada is currently the only U.S. state where it's legal. Right to have now. brothels. You can have brothels? I don't know about the brothel thing, but sex work like on the street, that's legal, but no, no other state. I don't know about the brothel thing. Well, they have the Mustang Ranch in Reno. It's a brothel. Hmm. I guess I've never been there. Just to be clear, <laughs> like what? <laughs> yes, I, I. Then I guess it is. I don't. I wasn't completely sure on that. But anyway, another sex worker by the name of Christine Claudette Dumont went missing not long after. On April twenty third of two thousand and four, she was seen getting out of a car on Arnold Street, the same, same one. Street. Yep, in Woonsocket. Christine was forty two at the time and also struggled with drugs. Her family didn't think she would leave without a trace either. She also had uncashed disability checks, which if you're struggling for money, you're not going to leave those checks uncashed. 
Detectives were handling these two cases as missing persons investigations until another sex worker went missing from the exact same area. 25-year-old Stacy Goulette vanished on July 3, 2004 after being at a fireworks show. It is interesting that the ages are kind of all over the place, mm-hmm. 40s, 30s, 20s, and Audrey Lynn Harris was African-American and these other girls are white. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem, I mean, sex work and drugs, but other than that, appearances and stuff, not really a pattern. Stacy was a wound socket native and worked as a cashier at several businesses. She had two children and her family said her life began to spin out of control after a messy split with her children's father. She lost custody of her children and had to pay him child support. She was struggling with money and turned to sex work. At the time she went missing, she was also pregnant. Moonsocket police were starting to wonder if some type of serial killer could be preying on the women. Well, some did. Others were skeptical and kept saying, oh, they just have high-risk lifestyles. Maybe they're overdosing somewhere. They're just vanishing. They weren't. So it was kind of split. Some officers weren't that concerned, whereas others were, you know, maybe something's going on here. Yeah. So they didn't have to speculate very long thanks to someone calling the police headquarters with a tip in mid-July. A sex worker named Jocelyn Martell had just been arrested for drug offenses, and she was at a detention center awaiting trial. They were able to speak to her, and she had a story to tell them. She said recently she had a bad encounter with a man who offered her cash for sex at his apartment. Once she got inside, he attacked her. She was able to escape, but of course she knew where this guy lived. Mm -hmm. At 221 Cato Street. Police got his name from utility bills and his photo from the DMV. They printed out his photo and put it on a spread to show Jocelyn, and she immediately picked him out. Officers started to talk to other sex workers in the area, which led them to some women who described similar assaults with a similar-looking guy. One agreed to sign a complaint along with Jocelyn, so this was enough to get an arrest warrant. Tease Morris said she encountered a similar assault at the very same apartment. She told the police, at first, everything was nice. She was happy to be with a cute guy for once, and he was really polite when he was talking to her and everything, but then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he grabbed her from behind and started attacking her. Then she kicked him. She said she was kicking at the kitchen table, refrigerator, everything. They ended up in the bedroom, and he got her onto the bed. She tried to escape by kicking out a window, and then finally she was able to get away from him and... She said she was pleading for her life, and all of a sudden, he just stopped. It was very odd. Jocelyn said her situation was similar. She was able to escape him by jamming her finger into his eye. This man's name was Jeffrey Mailhot, and he was a 33-year-old machinist. So, by all accounts, Jeffrey was friendly and soft-spoken. He had a squeaky clean record. His landlord called him the ideal tenant. He had a steady job, always paid his rent on time. He was five foot three, and he was a white man with, quote, a fair complexion and a cheeky face that gave him a Campbell Soup Kid look. So he had fat cheeks. I guess. Campbell Soup Kids have fat cheeks. He looked, I guess, Campbell baby facey. So investigators tried to talk to anyone they could that knew him or his background, and many people knew of him, but no one really knew him knew him. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Mailhot grew up as a kid that kept to himself. When he was nine years old, his parents divorced, and when he was just 17, his mom died of lung cancer. Five years later, when he was 22, his dad also died of lung cancer. Mm. So no parents by age of 22. He was known as just an average, ordinary guy in high school. 
He kind of blended into the background. And as he got older, he tried to find an identity for himself. He bought a Harley Davidson and a leather jacket and attempted to hang out with bikers. It's interesting that's... That's his go-to. That's his go-to, yeah. He started weight training and got into watching wrestling. He also went to a local sports bar and sang karaoke all the time. You think my karaoke's bad? Well, this guy would shout heavy metal songs by Metallica and Kiss. This is the guy who swipes on me. A manager of the sports bar said that no matter how loud he screamed, few noticed. Who doesn't notice? notice a bad singer? Yeah, like he was so, I don't know. And the guy said he didn't stand out in a crowd, bad or good. He never stood out. Isn't that just... It's kind of depressing. I know. Like he couldn't do, he wasn't noticed no matter what he did. Yeah. Very strange. So he ended up moving to 221 Cato Street and rented a unit in an older Greek revival house. There were four units total in this building, but two of them were vacant because they were getting renovations, and the elderly woman across the hall from him had died, and no one moved in yet, so he had this whole big building to himself. Nice. He did have a small circle of friends and a woman who dated him off and on. She said Jeffrey was always laughing, and she couldn't say anything bad about him. She did think, though, that he had OCD. Every item in his home, his car, and even his pockets had to be in the right spot, He constantly checked his wallet to make sure every bill was facing the same way. And he had to keep it the stack a quarter inch above the leather. So visitors to his apartment were afraid to touch anything, especially his carefully sorted CDs and DVDs. If they did, they knew he'd be on his feet moments later trying to look casual as he anxiously, you know, put it back in its place. Very sleeping with the enemy. So he sometimes got into dark moods. She said that she and other friends would sometimes use his spare key hidden outside to check on him because he would go days without answering his phone, leaving the house, talking to anyone. Like he would just drop off the face of the earth almost. One night she told him that she was falling for him and he told her, I'm sorry, I can never be in love with anyone. I'll always be alone. And she said lately his emotional swings were getting worse and worse. She said one night they were watching a comedy video together They're laughing and having a good time, and one minute later, tears were just rolling down his face. She asked him what's wrong, and he said, I think I should be alone for the rest of my life. Makes me feel terrible for him. I know he's a terrible person, but I'm going to be the Spoiler, don't. I hate whenever (laughs) anybody has, like, mental things going on. Well, one of the investigators, Detective Lee, said this. He had the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing going. Aw, damn it. (laughs) He said everyone he worked with loved him. The landlord, when they went to his house, was yelling that they should leave the kid alone. He said, we thought maybe he had something to do with one of them, maybe two of them, but no way is this guy a serial killer. No one thought he, Mm -hmm. no. Well, on July 16th, 2004, Jeffrey Mailhot returned home from work and found officers waiting to arrest him. Once he was taken back to the station, Detective Sergeant Edward Lee asked him, quote, ever pick up a prostitute? Jeffrey said, I've seen him around, but I haven't picked up any. I mean, I picked up a girl I thought I'd seen before. I thought she needed a ride, but then she propositioned me and I let her out. The detectives pulled out several photos from the missing persons files of the three missing women. And Detective Lee said, This is serious stuff, so try to be as truthful as possible. If you're embarrassed, we don't really care. We're trying to get to the bottom of something. But if we start out like this, where it appears you're not telling the truth, it doesn't look good for you. So they're trying to kind of figure out a way to break him at this point. And he told them he didn't know any of the girls. And Detective Lee said, 
How are you so sure? Jeffrey said, because I never killed anybody. That's what you're getting at. And then they had uh, something to go in on. They're like, I don't know if anyone in these pictures was killed, but they are missing. So immediately he's, you know. Yikes on a bike. Yeah. Yeah. So earlier in the interview, Jeffrey revealed that both of his parents had cancer by the time he was 22. So they used that against him and said, you know, they had proper burials, that they're in consecrated ground. The families of these girls can't mourn and say goodbye. They'll have to live with that for the rest of their lives or until we get to the bottom of this. Lee spread out the pictures again and said, what happened, Jeff? What happened? You pushed it too far. Things got out of hand. Then Jeffrey nodded and said, yeah, it went too far. Then he recounted everything. He said over the years, he'd picked up around 30 sex workers and would mostly take them back to his apartment because he knew he'd have privacy there. He couldn't remember how many women he attacked, but he guessed that 10 or 12 had survived and escaped. He gave the details on how he would choke his victims once they were in his apartment. He said that on two occasions, his victims fell to the floor unconscious. Both were back up in minutes and neither wasted time getting out the door. So, like, he'd do this stuff, they'd run away or whatever, and they didn't tell because they didn't, Yeah, you know, I don't know. No one takes them seriously. No one takes a sex worker serious. Another who got away stood outside shouting that she had a cell phone and that she dialed 911, but the cops never showed. (sighs) One woman convinced him to back off by playing the submissive slave, like she was trying to kind of, you know, trick him. He said, she's standing in my bedroom saying, please, master, please let me go. He said, I think she offered my money back. And then they asked, any of these girls fight back? Any of them cut you or anything? And he said, a couple of scratch marks. One of them gouged my eye to get away. So there you go, that Mm -hmm. one woman who said she Mm -hmm. poked him in the eye. The night he picked up Audrey, he was driving home after too much beer at K2U Strip Club when he saw her walking on a sidewalk. He pulled up beside her and suggested a quick trip to his place, and she got in. I was going to have sex with her, just straight sex, he told detectives. She got undressed, I got undressed, I went to get her the money, she turned around, and that's when I went up behind her and started choking. She was kicking, scratching, trying to look away, trying to get away. As she was losing breath, she stopped struggling. Then I let her go. I looked at her, her eyes were open, but she wasn't looking at anything. I figured she was dying. That's when I got the pillow. I suffocated her. Oh, God. And he was telling them this very matter-of-factly. No emotion. How terrifying it would be to be suffocated. Mm -hmm. Then he dragged her body to the bathroom and went to bed. According to him, the next morning he was hungover. He went to the bathroom and started to pee. And that's when he saw a corpse in the tub. And immediately he recounted everything that had happened the night before and was like, oh, crap, I'm in trouble now. So... He called his boss and told him he needed a day off, and then that evening, he wrapped the body in a rug and loaded it into his SUV, drove around the city trying to find a place to dump it, couldn't decide on anywhere, and went home. With the body still. With the body still. Yes. Two days later, he purchased a handsaw and decided to dismember the body in his bathtub. Here we go. Yeah, he cut the body up, put multiple parts into multiple small trash bags, like it wasn't all in one, and then dumped them in multiple dumpsters around the city. And they were never found. No. Jeffrey picked up Christine Dumont a little over a year later and Stacy Goulet two months after that. He did the exact same thing to both women. But he said that this wasn't an accident. These were urges. Killing gave him a thrill and made him feel powerful. And Detectives Lee and Nowak asked if he'd kill again, if he had the chance, and he said, 
I probably would. I probably would. So they have his confession, but they still need physical evidence because a good defense could knock this out. Got it, yeah. Detectives went to his apartment and, you know, had a good old can of luminol. His bathroom lit up. Tub, toilet, grout, floorboards, wall, everywhere. They said because of how his tiles were, it lit up like a grid Uh. because of the blood and the grout. Yeah. The mop he used to clean the floor also had blood on it. He still had it? Yes. They found his handsaw in the basement and got footage from the hardware store he purchased right before the last victim's disappearance. They searched a local landfill, and 12 days after his arrest, they found a plastic bag, just one, with human parts inside. And the DNA matched Stacy Goulet. <sighs> so they never found any actual body parts of anyone else, but <sighs> I don't know. He would have got away with it. They were prepared and gathered more than 170 items of evidence. But he decided to forego a trial and pleaded guilty to three counts of murder and two counts of assault. He was sentenced to two life terms plus 10 years and will be eligible for parole by age 77. Audrey's mother, Claudette Harris, told Jeffrey that she hopes he rots in prison. She said, words right now cannot express the way I feel about you. Statements were read on behalf of Christine Dumont's nieces, and one niece wrote, she was not a piece of trash you could dispose of. Mm. Raymond, Stacy Goulet's father, showed Jeffrey a picture of his granddaughter and said, that was the girl whose mother he had taken away. Debbie, Stacy's mother, said that as a born-again Christian, she was compelled to forgive him. She said this, I have one question for you. Do you forgive yourself? Attorney General Patrick Lynch said that he hoped the plea deal would bring the family some solace. I have no feelings for Mailhot. He said he is an evil and depraved individual. So I got almost all my information from a really good and thorough article on Rhode Island Monthly, written by John Larrabee and Russ Olivo. I have some other sources I'll link up, but it was really well written, and they did a lot of investigation journalism on it. Wild. That's insane. I've never even heard of that. <sighs> I know. And Rhode Island had another serial killer I thought about covering. He was He's one of the youngest ones in the United States. But it was, I don't know, some children were involved. No. And it was really brutal. And no kids. He also, no, he had nothing happened to him as a kid. He had no, it was just. He was just. I don't know. My case was way better than yours. Just kidding. I, no, it was. <laughs> oh, I feel, ter- I mean, that's so terrible, those. I hate so much about cases like that where the cops are just like, oh, they're a sex worker. Oh, they're a drug addict. They probably, no one takes instead them of taking them serious and being, if that was a first grade teacher. Oh, I know. They would have blown their asses out trying to help and find and search but mm-hmm. you say sex worker or drug addict it doesn't mean that person's not loved and cared about by yeah. their parents or their children or their husband or what you know what I mean even finding details of the women was very difficult <sighs> and I could only find one picture of each woman that was used and it looked like a mugshot which is unfortunate I mean it's in the early 2000s you would yeah. think there'd be so much sure stuff of mm-hmm. who they were or they were, find much information on them people they I know, deserve, it's just, it's, it's, this was our last, this was our last case. I know, of this season one. Season one, this is it, this is the finale. This is the grand finale. This was it, vampires and sex workers. Oh man, yeah, well, we have good news. We do? Yeah, you're always like, what? <laughs> I'm always happened? like, we have, we have? 
we have a new patron. Yay! We love a patron. Kathy B. Hi, Kathy. From Maryland. Hi. And it's Kathy with an I-E. I don't know. I feel like that needs to be said. That's very... I don't think I've seen that before. I've not seen that. Yeah, it's interesting. I like it. I'm always discussing their names. Just just breaking their names down. No. Well, it's funny because (laughs) Druann messaged us again and she was like, "Uh, I was named after my dad, Andrew. I like that. Thank you, Kathy. We appreciate you. And we will be recording a patron episode for December. Even though this is our last episode, we're taking a couple weeks off. We're going to... We'll be back in January. We'll be back in January. We're going to find wilder cases to cover. We're going to... I don't know. We're going to bring it. We're going to brainstorm, see see what else you want. I don't know. If you have any case suggestions... We love a case suggestion. We do. Some of these states, we're like, oof. Mm-hmm. Keep up with what we're up to on Instagram at United States of Murder and on Facebook and Twitter at US of M Podcast. I wrote it down this time. US of M Podcast. <laughs> because we'll announce when we're coming back and when we have the patron episode released, we'll announce that. But it's going to be a fun one. I'm going to talk it about is. some scary Christmas folklore. You love the folklore. See, well... I'm going to be talking about something ghoulish this time. Yay! I might mention a demon or two. <sighs> I love a demon. What's better than a, <laughs> a Christmas demon a at Christmas that? Demon. Come on. It doesn't get better. Those are all the things. Have a good December. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Well, happy Hanukkah's all the holidays. Over now, but happy all the holidays. Have a great season with your family, friends, pets, or on your couch. Whatever. Whatever. Watch Interview with a Vampire. <laughs> yes. Do that for your holiday. <laughs> there you are. All right. Bye. Bye. See you in January. See you next year. 